0: Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison for sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with the world. We don't experience that type of imprisonment here in Canada. In places like Afghanistan, in in Korea, North Korea, some places in China, some places in Africa, you would go to prison and worse for this faith. So Paul's in prison, waiting possibly to die. Yet he has this joy when he thinks of the church in Philippi, that he is filled with joy when he thinks of them. Now, you can imagine, what if what would you do when you're in jail? Would you try to escape, dig out like in Shawshank Redemption with a spoon year after year, digging a little bit of dirt? Would you be complaining? Would you be going to your politicians? What would you be doing? Paul is sharing the gospel with the prisoners, and he's writing this letter joyfully, to the church in Philippi. This is evidence and living proof that joy is not rooted in our circumstance. That joy should not be rooted in our circumstance. It would be very easy for us if we had an amazing dinner before us with our favorite band playing, with our favorite people around us, and our health is well, and our bank account is full, and our kids are healthy, to rejoice. But the test of the Christian for their joy in Christ is when circumstances are not going well. Jobs are not going well. Our mental health is not well. Our physical health is not well. Our workplace is not well. If we have work, we don't have money. Our marriages are falling apart. Our kids are going crazy. Do we have joy? Joy should not be based on our circumstance because our circumstance will always change. And for Paul and for many biblical writers, joy is not an emotion, it's not a mood, it's not a feeling, it's an attitude. Biblical joy is an attitude. So I'm not talking about the kindergarten teacher who's just floating around, happy, celebrating, hugging people all the time kind of joy, but a deep-rooted confidence in a unchanging, loving, eternal God. And whatever the world throws at us, we are rooted in, in that. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean we don't get depressed. It doesn't mean life doesn't sting when we lose loved ones. But we do not stay like that. It is a fight for joy. This is the secret of true joy according to Elizabeth Elliot. You may have never heard of Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you may be familiar with Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary, I'd say in the early 40s to late 50s, before he was murdered by a tribe. Jim Elliot went on a mission to share the good news of Jesus with people. I'm not exactly sure the circumstance, but this tribe took his life Elizabeth Elliot was Jim's wife. She, several years later, would go back to the same tribe, to the same people who killed her husband and share the gospel with them. And she says this, the secret of joy. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me not me in a different set of circumstances. If our joy is anchored by our circumstance, we are going to be like roller coaster Christians with very high highs when things are good and very low lows when things are bad. There's a steadiness that Elizabeth Elliot's talking about. There's a steadiness in joy that Paul is talking about because it is the profound mystery of Christ in you because you have faith in an unwavering, amazing Savior. So Christians can face even the most difficult situations with joy because Christ is with me. Christ is in me. He's gone before me. He's working this for my good. We have hope outside of the circumstance. Where does the non-Christian turn to? Therapy, changing the circumstance, drugs, the TV, perhaps worse. The Christian is called to a joy that defies any explanation that the world has to offer. What is your joy based on? Where does your joy come from? What makes you joyful? Do any of these things you think of have anything to do with Jesus and His work and who He is? When we mutually have that joy together with the secret of Christ in us, we work together in something we call partnership. That's what Paul says in verse 5. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it now. This word is partnership. In Greek, it's translated more into the word fellowship. And fellowship means mutual commitment to the gospel. Mutual commitment to the gospel. Fellowship today within Christianity just means coffee or getting together, which is good. We, we should be doing these things. We should be getting together. We should be hanging out. If you like sports, watching sports, going for walks, eating food. Christians love casseroles. Bring more casseroles. And there is a certain degree as to that is fellowship, but biblically not really because true fellowship is a mutual commitment to the gospel fellowship occurs when friends are committed or Christians are committed to a common cause or a goal and they flourish because of their common pursuit of it you think of sports teams you you think of you think of veterans who who fought in wars together how they have this Unbreakable bond together because they had this common cause through the thick and thin of war. Fellowship is the mutual commitment to the gospel. So, if you're looking for true fellowship, dear Christian, we're to give ourselves to the gospel at home, around the world. We're to be serving together in Bible studies, whether women's Bible studies or men's Bible studies, or together. Doing children's ministry, sharing the message of hope with the poor together, joining a band of brothers and sisters to pray for the world together. This is Christian fellowship. And for my generation, we love to just hang out indefinitely. Just hang out and do really nothing. And that's fine. What did you do for the past fifteen hours with them? Well, I don't really know. And, and these are all all good. These are these things are good, in their time and in their season. But if we want to say fellowship and have it mean something by a biblical definition, it is a common cause for the gospel. Are we working for the cause of the gospel together? This is rooted, our joy and our passionate pursuit of sharing the gospel with the world is rooted in what Jesus Christ is doing in our lives. What Jesus Christ is doing in our lives. Paul is saying in verse 6, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, wherever you are as a Christian, God has began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Other translations say, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will do that. He will bring it to completion. It is not our pursuit of perfection. Rather, it is God's work in your life. And this roots us in Jesus. This roots us in Jesus. We have confidence in our Christian growth, not not because of the things that we're doing, but because Jesus is faithful to transform you to be more like Him. They have confidence. We can have confidence that if God has called us to Himself, He will complete it. We have what's called eternal security. We have assurance, not thinking, oh man, I messed up. I messed up real bad. Christ is going to reject me. Now, if that's a continual unrepentant pattern in our lives, it shows us that we are not Christians. If we have an unrepentant pattern of sin and love it, it shows that our our hearts are not transformed. But in these Times when we struggle, does it hurt us? And does it hurt us knowing, it know, knowing that it breaks the heart of the Savior? We have confidence that God will never let us go. There's a Christian author. His name is Marcus Bachmule. And he points out that Christian assurance, the idea that you are saved, you're going to heaven. You're going to make it to the end. The idea that a Christian assurance rests not in our Christianness, that our assurance is not in the Christianness of our Christianity, that we look a certain way, that we 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 do this and we that to gain all these points with God. It is not the Christianness of our Christianity, but in quote, the Godness of God. The godness of of God. He is saying that God, who will never relent or break his promise, a God who is invincible, that the gates of hell will not prevail against him, that there is no one greater than God, he is the one that assures your final destination. So it doesn't rely on me, it relies on him. Our assurance of our salvation rest not in how strong our grip is on the Father's hand, rather how strong His grip is on our lives. Paul continues in verse 7. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding, for I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Do you hear the passion and joy he has for the Philippian church? He says why he has this passion and joy for them. Because as partners in the gospel, they have not wavered since day one in sharing the goodness of Jesus Christ with the world they've partnered with him this is the only book in the entire new testament that has no criticism or condemnation from paul what he writes about is because of their unwavering partnership in the gospel with him and he's excited he's stoked he's fired up whatever words you want to use his joy for them is incredible Do we have that kind of joy for others when we see the gospel going forward? Or do we tend towards criticism? Or do we tend towards cynicism and skepticism? Do we rejoice in the good work of God in others? He is overflowing with joy for the church in Philippi. And he prays for them. He ends with this prayer He's praying that they would have a certain kind of love. He prays for this church to have a certain kind of love. He says, I love what you guys are doing. I love hearing about what you guys are doing. I'm so affectionate and joyful for what you're doing. So thankful. I want you to grow in this kind of love. The love that helps you discern and know life better. A life that is helping you grow in knowledge and in truth, in knowledge and in understanding, that's verse 10. The purpose of this love is to grow in knowledge and understanding. Because if you think about it, if a total stranger comes up to you off the street, just encounters you and says, I love you so much, that is insane. And you run, you call the police, You try to find a peace bond, restraining order, whatever it is. Why is that insane? Well, first of all, it's weird to ever do that. And if you're hoping to date them or something, that's that's not how you go about things. Maybe it works. The real reason why that's crazy and insane is because they don't know you. Because you could be flattered for a second. You could think, okay, this person comes and just falls to the ground, and they say, I don't know your name. I don't know your name, but I love you. You don't then think, well, let's get married. Because that love is not based in knowledge. It's not based in anything. There's no no understanding. One writer said, that love without knowledge is squishy and spineless, sentimentalism, that this type of love without knowledge is squishy, spineless sentimentalism. It's meaningless. It's totally meaningless. Nor does it honor God for Christians to say, I love God. And someone asks, well, why do you love God? And you say, I don't know. It doesn't honor God. We need a zeal with knowledge. We need a love with with knowledge, we need, to know, we need to know God for who He is and love Him for who He is, not in an, in an image that we want God to be. A lot of what's happening today in this world, we want to make God, uh, we want to make God female or both, or we want to take God out of the picture. We don't want hell to be real. We don't want judgment to be real. So we're just making God in our own image. And Scripture calls us not to do that. Paul wants the Philippians to grow in their knowledge of God and to live blameless lives, he says. Blameless lives. And literally that can be translated not stumbling. They live lives that are not stumbling. That they live pure morally transparent lives free from stumbling. And they stand upright and they're pure. And they do this because of what Jesus has done for them, that their lives reflect it. He wants them to grow in the knowledge of God. He wants their love to grow, that their knowledge and discernment would grow. This should be the prayer for every church in the world, for every Christian. That if you are a Christian, that you do not Remain where you are now, that as your life progresses, so does your knowledge and discernment of who God is. We need to know more true things about God so we can love Him more and more and more. We need to fall in love with God year after year with more and more knowledge of who He is. And this is a bottomless, infinite well that has no end. This prayer that he has for the Philippians is the same prayer that he has for each of the churches he he writes to when he's in prison. These are called the prison epistles. There's four of them. There's Ephesians, there's Colossians, there's Philippians, where we are, where we are now, and Philemon. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon are the four prison epistles. called this because He's writing them in prison. Ephesians 1, verse 17. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Colossians 1, verses 9 to 10. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Philemon. There's only one chapter in Philemon. It's in verse 6 of this single chapter. And I am praying that you will put into action... The generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Are we growing in our knowledge of Jesus? If you're not a believer, do you have a pursuit for that that boils up in faith? What Paul is not saying, and what I'm not saying is you need to be smart. You need to go to seminary. You need to get a doctorate or a master's. You need to get educated. You need to know the Greek. And you need to know the Hebrew. And you need to know Aramaic. I'm not saying that. These are good things. But that's not why we are saved. Because if this were the case, not many people would be saved. And it would be a faith based on works. And I heard one pastor say this. His name's is Alistair Begg. He's taken us back to the thief on the cross. When Jesus Christ was crucified 2,000 years ago, there's two men on either side of Jesus. One was a thief and the other was a criminal. The crucifixion is reserved for the most horrible criminals at the time. So this thief on the cross, Alistair Begg is trying to imagine, is hanging on the cross, And he puts his faith in Jesus. And Jesus says to him, I assure you, tonight you will be with me in paradise. And so Alistair Begg is trying to imagine the judgment when he's before the gates of heaven and the thief on the cross goes before this angel. And the angel's got a clipboard and says, Okay, who are you? Well, I don't know what the guy's name is. I'm the thief on the cross, Teddy and the angel whoever says why why should i let you in what would the thief from the cross say well i have i have reformed theology i listen to john piper i know the doctrine of justification by faith alone i have a perfect ecclesiology and eschatology you don't need to know what those words mean he doesn't say that he says i don't know and the angel with his clipboard was like, "Okay, I need to go get my manager." And he goes and gets his manager. Obviously, this is not what happens, but Alster Begg is just giving us a, a a thinking exercise. So the angel gets the manager. Manager comes like, "Okay, Teddy, why should I let you in? I don't know. I've lived nothing but a horrible life up until my death. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Surely you know something. Why do people go to heaven? I don't know." Have you read the Bible? What's that? Have you been in fellowship? Fellow, what? I don't know. All I know, all I know is the guy in the middle said, I can come in. That's all I know. So it's not based on his works, it's based on the merit and the accomplishments and the goodness of someone else, Jesus Christ accomplished salvation on the behalf of the thief and for you if you're a Christian and for anyone out there. So then we can be assured that no one is too far from the gospel. No one is too far from the gospel because of the complete work of Jesus. And when we know that, and when we know more of that, it should delight our hearts It should make us want to share it. It should make us want to read more about it in the Bible. We should have more and more reasons to love him each passing day, each passing week and year. Making Jesus the central figure of our lives is the foundation of true joy. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he's saying you need to know him more. And more and more. And so do I. Until that day when he returns and we go to heaven. And we don't need Bible studies. And we don't need evangelism. And we don't need mental health courses. And all of these things. Because we will be like him. We will see him for who he is. It will be perfect. <coughs> there we will experience true joy. From eternity to eternity, we'll never get bored, we'll never get sick of it. The glory and praise to His name and never our own. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we continue through this journey through Philippians, I pray that You would increase my joy in knowing You. I, I pray that You would increase the joy of those who hear this message and I pray that you would open the minds and hearts of those who do not know you to taste just a shadow of this joy and want more of it to pursue you with all that they are and we would journey with them for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the king that your glory would travel from household to household in the Yukon around Canada around North America, to every continent, to places where people are being beheaded and jailed for the gospel. Would we rejoice that we will see those who've been persecuted for their faith with their crown in heaven? Would we sing praises with them? And would we, Lord, with all discernment and love, would you guide us in how to see your amazing news go to every community in the Yukon and to every heart around the world. We pray this for your name alone in our and for our joy. Amen.